Hello. Thank you for joining us in this week's study of Jeremiah. If somebody shared this with you and you'd like to go back and listen to prior episodes, uh, you can go to godsredeemed.org and then look under the sermons and classes tab on the left and you can find the prior classes that Matt Dow and myself have been recording each week. Uh, if you prefer to listen in podcast format, um, you can just search on any of your podcast apps for the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ. And uh, both formats, we've got classes available. We've also got a class on Acts that's available right now. We've also got sermons. We've got recordings of song worships. Uh, so lots of different ways to be edified and to be encouraged. And uh, hope that you're finding, finding some of these things useful to you right now in your study. Um, I gave Matt a little bit of a hard time last week about how long his class was. And then I started studying for this week's class. <laughs> These chapters are just, they're just so full and so rich of edifying, encouraging, instructional things for our, our lives. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into our study this week. We're going to be in Jeremiah. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. Unlike some of our uh, previous studies, these four chapters are very closely connected. Uh, they're, they're all centered around this theme of consolation or encouragement. Um, a, a lot of writers actually call this the book of consolation. Um, you could think about this as Jeremiah's version of some good news. Uh, what we've been studying up to this point has not been good news. Uh, Jeremiah has the, the heavy burden and task of coming to the people and being one of the few voices that is coming to the people and telling them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And what they need to hear is that for generations now, they have been faithless. They have been sinning against God. They have not been faithful to him. They've turned aside after idols and punishment is coming. And Jeremiah, as we've discussed at length now, is prophesying in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he's going to be prophesying right up until the destruction of the city. Uh, it's, it's probably, uh, and looking at these chapters tonight, probably near the very end. Uh, we do have a timestamp for chapters 32 and 33, and that's right at the end. And just based on the writing, uh, one might expect that chapters 30 and 31 are pretty similar to that. Uh, I want to take just a little bit of a different tack tonight, again, because there is so much here in these chapters what I want to start off with is just a general overview of 30, 31, 32, and 33. And then I picked out eight elements, eight aspects of consolation that I want us to look at. So instead of going chapter by chapter, um, mostly because we're going to see some of these themes repeated across these four chapters, um, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit to those eight elements or those eight aspects. And by no means are those the only eight. Uh, I would encourage you to go through and read these chapters You'll find, uh, you'll, you'll find far more than just these eight things that I'm going to bring out tonight. One of the things you're going to want to look for, um, as we've discussed before with Jeremiah, is this blending of ideas. As we read through tonight, you will see these prophecies that seamlessly blend both physical and spiritual applications. Uh, also, they will blend applications for the people as they return after 70 years of captivity. But you'll also see some things that uh, would perhaps we would be considered a, a dual application. Uh, for example, we'll talk about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, 
But there is also a greater application to that prophecy when we think about the heavenly Jerusalem. And so you'll see some of those themes, some things that will only apply um, maybe to the people or that will only make sense to the people in this near term, but then will make sense to the Bible student and maybe to the first century Christian as they see these things fully realized in the Messiah's coming. So look for those things as we study tonight. Uh, so let's just do a quick overview. Uh, chapter 30 does a good job of setting the scene for us. Um, this is what we have been seeing in all these previous chapters, but uh, there's just such a uniqueness about the way that Jeremiah captures the mood of the people. Uh, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 30 and in verse 5. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? Guys, if you're like me, there is maybe nothing more terrifying than thinking about, as a man, having to go through childbirth. So these verses hit me pretty hard. That's capturing the mood. Jeremiah is looking around at grown men who look like they are delivering children. And that, that, is, that is a terrifying thought to me. Uh, knowing, knowing what our wives go through in childbirth, I, I would be bent over, hands on my knees with a pale face as well. Uh, but that captures the fear and the terror that is around Jeremiah right now. Again, it's quite possible that 30 and 31 are at a similar time to 32 and 33, and this is going to be right near the end. Um, the, the siege mounds have already been built in chapter 32, and if we're at a similar point in time, you can imagine that all these things that Jeremiah has been saying to the people, they're now starting to see that they're coming to pass, and they're realizing that destruction is coming for them. Uh, that's, that's the scene that we start off with in chapter 30. But it does quickly move from that to, to go from those dire circumstances to the salvation that God is going to provide to the remnant. Um, what's interesting is the rest of chapter 30, and then also chapter 31, they go on to point out that this restoration, this salvation for the remnant, is not going to be just for Judah. This is going to be for Judah and for Israel, and we'll discuss that at length. But that's what chapter 30 and then what chapter 31 go on to talk about, is that there is going to be this remnant that is going to be saved. And it's going to be a remnant from both Israel, who, as we studied before, they were taken away into Assyrian captivity some years prior. But for both Israel and Judah, there is going to be a remnant that is going to be, that is going to be saved, and they're going to be able to come back into the land. Chapter 31 also takes the time to uh, maybe dispel something that the people had been misapplying. Uh, later on in that chapter, it talks about this saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Um, it's interesting that Jeremiah brings this out because Ezekiel, who is, is an overlapping contemporary, also brings this out in Ezekiel chapter 18. And now Ezekiel is prophesying to the individuals that are already in captivity in Babylon. Um, but it shouldn't be much of a surprise to us because these messages are coming from the same source, and that's the Lord. But this is a message of personal responsibility. And this personal responsibility is going to be a hallmark of the new covenant. And that's something else that chapter 31 talks about. There in 31 uh, verses 31 down through uh, really the rest of the chapter there, it talks about this new covenant that is going to be established. It's going to be very different 
from the covenant that God had with his people. And again, we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about some of the elements of this consolation. Uh, as we move into chapter 32, uh, chapter 32, as I mentioned previously, does have a timestamp for us. It tells us in verse 1 that this is the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. It's also the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, so we've actually got a double timestamp. But again, this is right near the end. Uh, I believe it's later on in the chapter, uh, yeah, verse 24, uh, chapter 32 and verse 24, he says, look, the siege mounds. So it's quite clear to everybody that's in Jerusalem that this, this destruction is coming. Uh, you can imagine that maybe some areas of Judah have already been overtaken by the Babylonian armies. But what's so interesting about this is that in chapter 32, Jeremiah is actually in the court of the prison, but God comes to him and he says, one of your relatives is going to come to you and he is going to ask you to buy a field in your hometown of Anathoth. You need to go ahead and buy that, record that deed in front of witnesses. Okay, now think about these two things. The land is being overrun. You are in prison also, and this whole area is going to be under Babylonian captivity at any point in time. From man's perspective, going out and buying a piece of land seems, seems foolish. Uh, for all we know, Anathoth could already be under Babylonian control. And furthermore, Jeremiah is in prison, so he has no, no ability, no use to go work this land or use this land that he's buying. So, so what's he getting at? Uh, there's a beautiful prayer there, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 16 and following. Really reminds me of some of the some of the prayers of like an Ezra or Nehemiah, where he he pours out praise to God, but he, but he's also praying for understanding. He's saying, God, I, I see all the things that you're doing. Help me to understand why I should buy this this piece of land. This fits in with the consolation, though. God is telling him there is going to come a time when the people will come back and they will inhabit this land again. And so this, this purchasing of the land was a symbol that you can purchase something, you can record it because you, uh, in, in not necessarily Jeremiah himself, but you as a people, you will come back here. You will be back here and you will be able to enjoy this land again and use this land again. So it's not going to be futile to purchase and own land and to record it. Uh, very, very interesting symbol that's presented to us in Jeremiah chapter 32, but just giving assurance of their return. Uh, finally, chapter 33, uh, the, the, the big things there in chapter 33 uh, is actually an echo of what we've seen prior in Jeremiah chapter 23. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 23, we talked about this branch, uh, this branch that was going to come from David's household. Uh, this is one who is going to rise up and the hallmarks of his rule are going to be justice and righteousness, something that is sorely lacking uh, from the leadership in Jeremiah's day. That's really what we focused on back in those the, the early 20s, um, uh, those chapters in the early 20s, just the complete lack of leadership in all different facets, the lack of leadership from the kings, the princes, the priests, um, and, and how that was contrasted with this leader that God was going to bring, this branch of David, and that's, and that's the Messiah. And his name was even going to be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's how essential to his character, righteousness and justice is. And like this ruler, God's covenant with the people is going to be permanent. So that's what he spends time talking about there in verses 19 through the end of the chapter in Jeremiah chapter 33. And he says, just as I have a covenant with the night and the day. So just as sure as night turns to day and day turns to night. 
over and over and over again every single day of our lives. Just as sure as God's covenant with the night and the day is God's promise and his permanence of this new covenant that is going to be administered by this branch of David, this righteous, justice, uh, justice-filled ruler. So that's the overview of, of these chapters. As I mentioned, we're going to see a lot of similar themes. And so what I'd like to do now is I'd like to talk about uh, eight things, eight things that I've picked out, eight elements or aspects of this consolation. And I'd ask you to put yourself in the position of the people during Jeremiah's time. So specifically, think about some of the things we've talked about. Think about your rulers. Think about what you're seeing with this uh, impending captivity. And then think about the words that Jeremiah is bringing to you. And just think about how they would bring you encouragement, comfort, or consolation. Now, the first thing I want to look at is uh, we'll look in chapter 30 and in verse 11. Um, chapter 30 and in verse 11. I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I've scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Maybe, maybe a simple point, but I think, it's, I think we should start with this. A remnant will be saved. Um, it would be easy, at least I think, when you go back to some of the prior things that Jeremiah is talking about, to think that Judah is just going to be utterly destroyed. Um, now, Jeremiah has made a point to talk about the salvation of this remnant, but that should be of comfort to them, that you are not going to be utterly destroyed, even though it may look like it, especially with the siege mounds and the impending, and the impending armies coming in, some of you are going to be saved. Uh, two waves of captives have already been taken, but that's not certain. Just because captives have been taken to Babylon, that doesn't mean that they're going to come back. Uh, you know, they've probably seen lots of individuals that have been taken off never to return again, only to die in captivity. For all they know, they could be taken away captive by Babylon, and that could be it. So this should be the first thing that should be of comfort to them, is that a remnant will be saved. Uh, we see this again in 31 and in verse 7. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind, the lame, the woman, the child, the one who labors with child together, a great throng shall return there. So that's the first thing. And again, very simple, but that would be comforting, uh, especially because, again, put yourself in the place of the people. You've had all these false prophets for years and years and years that said, nothing's going to happen. You're going to be okay. Peace, peace, peace. Not looking like they're going to be right. Jeremiah, on the other hand, is the one that has been prophesying about justice. And just, I mean, just think about some of the things that he has said. We are talking not about a slap on the wrists or about, you know, going off into the corner for time out. We are talking about death. And Jeremiah has gone to great lengths to describe to them the death that is going to be in the streets. So this should come as a comfort to them that they are not going to be utterly destroyed. Even though the city may fall, even though a great number of them may be taken away into captivity, a remnant is going to be saved. The second thing that I want us to look at is that this remnant is going to be comprised of both Israel and Judah. And again, this is something that maybe we don't think about a whole lot, but Israel has been taken away into Assyrian captivity. Now, it may be a similar situation to where uh, you think about when Jerusalem was destroyed, that final wave of captives was taken away. There were still people that were left in the land. Uh, the, the poorest of the poor, 
was left there. Um, but you think even after uh, even after uh, Zedekiah here, you had Gedaliah the governor. So there were enough people that were there; they still needed to be governed. Um, but then, of course, we had that situation where Gedaliah is killed, and some of the people go to Egypt. But what I'm getting is there were still people in the land. So it may be that there are still people that are living up in the northern tribes. Uh, we also know that uh, Babylon has conquered uh, Assyria. And so it may be that some of, the, uh, some of the people from Israel have been taken now under Babylonian captivity. But regardless of exactly how it happens, we see here God making it quite plain that this remnant that is going to be saved is going to be made up of both Israel and Judah. Let's look at a couple of verses here um, that, that highlight this throughout our chapters. Chapter 30 and verse 3. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now let's go to chapter 31. There in verse 1. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Uh, we already read verse 8. talks about bringing them from the north country. It's referencing those 10 tribes, those 10 northern tribes. Uh, look in chapter 32. Chapter 32 and in verse 37. It says there, Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger and my fury and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and will cause them to dwell safely. And finally, let's look at two verses in chapter 33. Uh, 33 and in verse 7. I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. Then look down in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. It makes it plain here that this is, this is going to be a remnant that is made up of all the tribes. It's interesting that when we look in Ezra, when they dedicate the temple, there's a sacrifice that is offered there for all 12 tribes. Uh, we're not given a whole lot of uh, details about this. Obviously, we know that there's these captives that go into Babylonian captivity. We have documentation of the number of them that were coming back from Babylonian captivity. But I only mention this because it, it seems there are lots of individuals out there that have uh, all these really, really interesting ideas about what happened to the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Um, you know, you may be thinking about our Mormon friends. Our Mormon friends have a doctrine that is built around the 10 lost tribes of Israel. But I think when we read here, it's, it's pretty plain that these, these tribes weren't lost. Um, the, the, the tribes, their, their lineage was not completely lost. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, I think it's interesting that uh, the prophetess Anna, uh, there in Luke 2, she's mentioned as being of the tribe of Asher. That was one of the northern tribes. Um, so it's not like these 10 tribes were just completely gone and lost forever. Um, it, it seems here God is making plain that these, this remnant that is going to be saved is going to be made up of all the tribes, that they're going to be brought back. Now, of course, you may already be thinking about this, but the greatest fulfillment of this is not just in select individuals from every single tribe coming back to this physical area. This promise, this salvation of the remnant, um, this idea of, of, of unifying all these people again together, um, this has, this has far greater fulfillment. Um, I think a lot about what's brought out in Ezekiel chapter 37. Again, going to Ezekiel again, this, this contemporary that is prophesying to the people in Babylonian captivity. But if you go to Ezekiel chapter 37, um, the first part of that chapter, very, very vivid prophecy talking about the valley of dry bones and these dry bones coming to life. 
Then the second half is the prophecy of those two sticks. And if you remember, he's supposed to write on one stick that this is for Judah, and write on the other stick, this is for Israel. And then he puts those sticks together, and they become one stick. And the idea is that there's one nation. One nation, under one king, under one God. And, of course, the greatest fulfillment of that is what we see in the kingdom. The kingdom that we all have the opportunity to be a part of today. The, the opportunity that we all have to be heavenly citizens. Not necessarily to be citizens of our individual cities or counties or states or countries, whatever they may be. We have the opportunity to be heavenly citizens. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and in verse 20. That is where everyone can be brought back from. No matter where you are, we can all be unified. Think about some of those verses. Uh, there's, there's, no longer, there's no longer bond or free. There's no longer slave, no longer man or woman. There is perfect, complete equality in the citizenship that is found in heaven, in that heavenly kingdom. And of course, so that would be the greatest, the greatest element of consolation. That no matter where you were, whether you were in Babylonian captivity or not, whether you are in a foreign country or not, that this is going to be for both Israel and Judah, and it's in fact going to be for all nations. Wherever you may be, you can come back to be there. Let's think about a third element of consolation. Um, when you go back to chapter 30, what's interesting here is that you see, I think, two, two things contrasted. Enemies are going to be punished. Israel and Judah are going to rejoice. Um, think about Matt's class last week, where uh, I believe it's chapter 27, thinking about the bonds and the yokes um, and how they were going to go into bondage. They were going to be in servitude to somebody else. Well, these enemies are going to be punished, and Judah is going to be released from that yoke, and they are going to be able to rejoice again. So let's look at some verses. Chapter 30 and in verse 8, it says, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Uh, let's look in now verse 16. Verse 16, Therefore all those who devour you shall be devoured. All your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. All who prey upon you, I will make a prey. Go down to verse 20. Their children also shall be as before. Their congregation shall be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. And finally, verse 23, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. A continuing whirlwind shall fall violently on the head of the wicked. So there's going to be this, this punishment for those that punish them and oppress them. And in contrast, there's going to be rejoicing for them. So let's look uh, back up to verse 19. Out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, the voice of those who will make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. Go to, uh, go to 31, and in verse 4, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of those who rejoice. Uh, go down to verse 13. The virgin shall rejoice in the dance, the young men, the old together. I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, make them rejoice rather than sorrow. You can go to verse 25 and see similar. You can go to chapter 33, and in verse 6, Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. So just think about this. You are in Jeremiah's time. Two waves of captives have already been taken. He is telling you, again, think about this. He is telling you that you need to go into captivity. That is actually God's will. God's will is for you to go under bondage and under servitude, but it's not going to be forever. 
that there is going to come a time when uh, this bondage, these yokes are going to be broken. Those that have punished and oppressed you will themselves be punished, and you will rejoice again. Um, and it's just interesting to think about to think about this, because they should have seen this. They should have seen the the geopolitics around them shift and change as these world powers have have risen and fallen. Uh, you know, they should have thought back to Egypt, how Egypt was this great and mighty nation that was humbled before God. Then how God uh, had had used them um, in, in in establishing them and giving them preeminence over, say, the Philistine nations or over the Moab nations or the Edomite nations. Um, they would have seen the Assyrians rise to power and then take away Israel, and now Babylon, who is rising to power to take over from the Assyrians. They've seen these things happen. They know that God has the power to do this. This should be of comfort and consolation to them. But, but again, I, I'm thinking, and you may already be thinking this as well, when you think about this peace that's going to happen, they would not see this physical peace. So it's not like they're going to come back from Babylonian captivity. And even though God is with them, again, we can read in, in Ezra and in, in Nehemiah, we can read in Haggai and some of these chapters, and we can see how God was with them to protect them from the neighboring nations while they rebuilt the walls, while they rebuilt the temple. But they're not going to be a, a, a big, prosperous nation again. Uh, history tells us um, about what happened in the years following under Greek rule and the, the battles they had to fight. Um, and, and then as we come to the New Testament, while there is, there is somewhat of a peace, they're, they're, under, they're under Roman rule. Um, and so what is the ultimate fulfillment of this? What is the ultimate fulfillment of this peace and this rejoicing? Well, you know, my, my mind went to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and when I go to Ephesians chapter 2, I see what the definition of peace is. Speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That ultimate reconciliation to God, that is what brings about rejoicing. That is what brings about peace. Uh, regardless of what our, our physical or our sovereign state, uh, state may be, we can have rejoicing and we can have peace, but it is only through the Messiah who is our peace and who makes peace possible. And the peace that we can have through reconciliation with God is greater than any kind of earthly peace. We saw uh, Israel and Judah had earthly peace, but that did not guarantee spiritual peace. And of the two, of course, the spiritual peace is the greater well, on that same, same thought, the fourth thing I want to bring out is that this, this comfort and consolation is going to bring with it a restoration of the relationship with God. And again, this should go hand in hand with the point that we just mentioned. Let's look at a couple of verses, 30 and verse 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. 31.1, that latter part there, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. They shall be my people. Verse 7 Thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people. See how that relationship is highlighted there. Verse 14, my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Go on into chapter 32. Chapter 32, and there in verse 38, a similar phrase, they shall be my people, 
I will be their God. And again, 33 and in verse 24, have you not considered what these people have spoken saying? The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. They have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation to them. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth, then I'll cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant. Again, bringing out there that there's permanence in day and night, and there's going to be permanence in this new relationship with his people. But again, it's bringing back that relationship, that relationship that was damaged so severely when the people left God and went astray after the idols, after the veils and the asterisks. But what's going to be comforting about this, this future point in time is that the relationship is going to be restored. But I think it's interesting to notice what is going to be crucial to restoring this relationship is found in chapter 31. We've looked at some of these verses before, but chapter 31, verses 6 through verse 9, what I really see here is I see, I see repentance. These individuals are saying in verse 6, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God, let us shout praises to him. But then when you come down to verse 9, they are going to come with weeping and with supplications. Uh, I, see, I see elements of repentance there. In order for God to be their God and for them to be their people, they have to have a humble and a contrite heart to come to him and to want to restore this relationship. Uh, the next point we're going to talk about is this new covenant. And uh, one of the hallmarks of this new covenant was that you chose to be part of this covenant. You, know, you weren't just born into it. You had to choose to be born into it. And so when you think about this restoration of the relationship with God and how wonderful and comforting that thought would be, it's going to require a humble and a contrite heart of individuals that choose to be in a relationship. And God promises, if you choose to be in a relationship with me, I will be your God, you will be my people, and we can have this wonderful covenant relationship. Well, let's talk about that new covenant. Uh, further on in chapter 31, let's look at 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. Uh, verses that are quoted to us later in the, in the New Testament in Hebrews, talking about replacing the first covenant with the second. And we're told clearly how that new covenant was brought into effect. Uh, it was brought into effect by the death of the testator, by the sacrifice that was offered through Christ. But this should be, this should be comforting. When you think about the people now, they have broken the covenant. They have broken the contract. And they may be wondering, those that do have a tender heart, they may be wondering, is there any hope for us? We've already uh, not fulfilled our part of the bargain. Is there anything that we can do? And God says, yes, there is. There is going to be a new covenant. There is going to be a new covenant. And again, as we mentioned before, this relationship can be restored. And this new covenant is going to be different. If you think about the covenant that God made with their forefathers, it was a covenant with the nation. You were born into this covenant. You had no choice. Uh, you, had to, you had to be taught. You had to be taught exactly what to do. You think about the, the different the rules and the regulations and the feasts and the sacrifices. You were born into that system. Whether you wanted to or not, 
and then you had to learn it. But the individuals that are going to be part of the new covenant, and that's us. We choose to be part of this covenant. We know what we're getting into. And while, yes, we are born into it, think about John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. We are born into it, but it is that second birth. We choose to be born into this covenant. And so no one, no one, has, to, no one has to be in there and then wonder what they're into. You know exactly what you're getting into. But I do think it's interesting that this covenant requires personal responsibility. These verses that we talked about in our overview, they're just prior to this, about the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It seems that the people had taken uh, these verses, um, these verses that, again, uh, Ezekiel also talks about. This is a common saying. And you can see that maybe the people are saying, well, we're in this spot because of what our parents did. We're in this spot because of what had happened generations before. Manasseh, you know, Manasseh was pretty wicked, and that's why we're here now. Now, there, are certainly, uh, there is certainly a truth in that ramifications can be felt for generations. The sins of some individuals will have an impact on others. But you have to draw a line uh, between the consequences and the responsibility. And these people bore the responsibility for their sins. Yes, their fathers may have sinned but they also had sinned. I think there is, there is a desire within us to always want to shift the blame. We want to put blame elsewhere to take that responsibility off of us. Uh, we, want to find, we want to find something that we can put that on so that we can be the victim. Because if we're the victim, that means that we didn't mess up. And so we want to, we want to find something that we can hang that on. We want to find some, some systemic fill in the blank. That's the reason that I am where I am right now. Not my own choices, uh, not uh, something that I've done right or wrong. What we see here is God telling the people that as part of this new covenant it is going to be a matter of personal responsibility. The soul that sins, that soul shall die. That is going to be a hallmark of this new covenant. And that is the hallmark of the covenant that we are in right now. Individuals that sin will face punishment. You can't ride on the coattails of the faithful. But what is, again, comforting and consoling is that you will stand on your own merits. So even if you are in the midst of a wicked generation, you can be faithful to God. And God makes that promise, that covenant with you, that if you are faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. And that should be comforting to the people there. Well, let's go on. As our time is getting away from us, let's look at the sixth thing I want to talk about. And that's the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That should be an element of consolation to them. Again, the siege mounds are there. The, the invading armies are coming in. Jeremiah's been prophesying for years that Jerusalem is going to be burned. The walls are going to be breached. The temple is going to be destroyed. The whole city is going to be destroyed. But a message of hope that this is going to be rebuilt. So look in uh, 30 and verse 18. Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents, have mercy on his dwelling places, the city shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Uh, 31 and in verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Uh, 32 and in verse 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and the famine and the pestilence. I will gather them out of all countries and I will bring them back to this place, and they shall dwell safely. 
Uh, and then finally, if you look at uh, 33, chapter 33, uh, and there really in verses 4 all the way down through verse 9, uh, talking about this rebuilding that's going to take place. And, and again, I just I put myself in that situation. Destruction is coming all around you, but yet Jeremiah is offering this message of hope that yes, this may be destroyed, but it will be rebuilt. And we know that it does. Ezra tells us that they were, they were able to rebuild the walls and the gates. They were able to rebuild the temple. Uh, it took a little bit of prodding. It took God sending those messengers, the prophets, Haggai to them to encourage them to get back to the work. But they were able to rebuild. Uh, and, and again, uh, I, I just can't help but thinking about maybe the greater fulfillment, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And again, uh, I think the, the prophets, Haggai, they, they do a really good job of linking the the rebuilding of the relationship with God that we've already talked about with the rebuilding of the temple, with the rebuilding of the city. As the people were working to rebuild Jerusalem, they were also working to rebuild their spiritual relationship. And you think about the ultimate fulfillment, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 22, that talks about that heavenly Jerusalem. Um, Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 21 that talk about just, just the beauty of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you think about us as saints building our relationship with God, looking one day to go to that new Jerusalem. And just think about the hope and the consolation that that would give a people that are, that, that are looking destruction right in the face. Uh, let's think about our last two points. Our last two points are going to focus on um, the consolation and the comfort that comes from the new kind of king. Um, our seventh point is that they are going to serve David, their king. So 30 and in verse 9. So chapter 30 and there in verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then 33 verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. Again, we talked about this when we, did, when we discussed this in, um, in chapter 23. But again, this is one they would probably realize. Uh, this is not something that's going to happen to us when we come back. Uh, you know, when we come back from Cap Babylonian captivity, God is not going to raise David up to us for us to serve him. This is looking to a different individual. This is looking to a different time. This is looking to that Messiah, that one who is going to be a branch of David's house. But again, just think about the difference. Compare this to the last four kings that they've served under. Uh, you think about these individuals, um, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, um, Zedekiah, these individuals that were, were weak, they were godless, they were set up by, by foreign leaders. Uh, this actually mentions that this king is going to come from among them, uh, 30 and in verse 21. Their nobles shall be from among them. Their governor shall come from their midst. How, how nice would that be as compared to Egypt coming in, deposing your king and putting somebody in its place? Or Babylon coming in and saying, yeah, no, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to change your name and I'm going to make this person be king. Zedekiah, you're going to go ahead and be a vassal king, but you're just going to do what I'm, telling, I'm going to tell you to do. Think about how different this king is going to be. This king that God promises them, one that comes from David's line, is going to be a branch 
that is going to come from David's house. He's going to execute justice. He's going to execute righteousness. And he's going to come from your midst. Not something that some other, some other country, some other nation is going to impose upon you. Someone that comes from your midst. Um, it is interesting that it mentions that he's going to come at a time of great sorrow. Um, you know, 31 and verse 15, uh, it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Maybe not something that on the outset we would have connected to the, the coming of the Messiah, but it's one that's done for us. Uh, these, these, this verse is quoted in Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 17. When Christ was born, and if you remember Herod, uh, who didn't want any challenge to his throne, had all the babies to and under slaughtered. And this, this slaughter of innocent children, uh, this, verse, this verse is referenced there. And you, you see uh, Rachel, Rachel who would have been uh, the mother of, of Joseph and of Benjamin, um, Rachel weeping for her children, um, weeping for her, her generations that had, that had been killed. But this Messiah was going to come during a period of great sorrow. Uh, again, maybe an element of comfort there for these people that even in the midst of great sorrow, even in the midst of great loss, something wonderful, something beautiful, something powerful can come because God's time is perfect and God's time is, is, is better than ours. Uh, let's finally look at the last thing that this, this king, this David, that is going to be raised up for the people that is so different from the leaders that they're used to. He is going to be a king and a priest forever. And let's go to chapter 33 for this. We've already referenced some of these verses. Um, chapter 33, uh, and we, we talked a little bit about the latter part of this chapter, but let's just look at verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Now, again, just think about what their current circumstance is. Uh, they have had kings uh, for as little as two months. Uh, they have had two kings that only served for a period of two to three months before they were deposed and taken away. Um, what we're talking about here, and this is why it should be comforting and consoling to the people, is that this king is going to have an, an, an everlasting kingdom. And in fact, God is saying there is going to come this time when there is going to be a king forever and a priest forever. And what's so wonderful and unique about the Messiah is that the Messiah fulfills both of those roles. The Messiah is priest forever, high priest forever, and he is also king forever. When we go to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 7, we see uh, that, that beautiful symbolism there that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who was both king and high priest of Salem. Uh, Christ, after that order, even though not from the tribe of Levi, uh, and it mentions that specifically, that even though he was not from the tribe of Levi, he would be able to serve as this high priest forever. And then when we go to Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 11, let's look at that as we uh, finish up our study tonight. Revelation uh, chapter 11, think about this, this kingdom. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. How wonderful is that? How comforting is that? Again, think about the people of Jeremiah's day that have seen upheaval all around them. Their, their city as they know it is getting ready to be destroyed. Their way of life as they know it 
is getting ready to be destroyed, and they're going to be taken captivity, taken captive rather, to a land that they're unfamiliar with. And Jeremiah is bringing them this message of hope that you are going to be able to go back. Uh, your enemies are going to be punished. You're going to rejoice again. You're going to be able to restore your relationship with God. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, and you're going to have a true leader. You're going to have a leader that doesn't care about exploiting you and taking from you. You're going to have a leader that's going to serve you, that's going to execute justice and righteousness. That should also be a comfort for us. <laughs> we, don't, uh, we don't necessarily see that from all of our leaders, do we? Uh, we don't see leaders all around us that care about serving. We don't see leaders all around us that care about executing justice and righteousness, certainly not upholding God's justice and righteousness. It should be a comfort for us too, just as for the people of Jeremiah's day, that the branch, this one that came from David's throne, David's lineage, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, he's the one that reigns forever and ever. He is the one that is our high priest and is able to serve and minister forever and ever. That's the one that we serve. I hope that tonight's lesson has been encouraging to you. Once again, one more, uh, one more recommendation to go back and to read more thoroughly these chapters. There's a lot there. There's a lot more than just eight points that we brought out. But I hope that it has been, uh, been encouraging to you. hope that it's been edifying to you. And I hope that you all have a great week.